will be in Mark chapter 14 and verse 66. Mark chapter 14, verse 66. Wayne was sharing with me that they're making some wedding preparations in his family. Uh, I've actually got uh, some uh, preparations to make myself. My son is going to come home from tech school in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, preparations are, are great. They're, they're made for a time of anticipation of something that is yet to come. The greatest day of preparation that ever took place was Good Friday. Uh, on Good Friday, Jesus Christ made preparations to bring us all of the blessings that God had in store for us. He did it through his death there at the cross. And so we're going to look at uh, these different ways that Jesus is prepared. We, as, as God's people, we need to take advantage of the great blessings that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Um, this scripture records the fact that Peter denied Christ. Uh, the Jewish leadership and, and the uh, special guard mocked him, spit upon him, beat him. The Romans also mocked him and beat him and ultimately crucified him. But Jesus, in this work that he did, changed everything. The kingdom of God truly did come and dwell among men uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, I want to talk to you about these different preparations. They call this, as Joseph of Arimathea goes and gets Jesus' body, uh, he does so, and the scripture says, on the day of preparation. Now, they were talking about the day of preparation for the Sabbath. But I couldn't help but notice the connection between the day of preparation for the Sabbath and the day of preparation that was the greatest day of preparation for all time, the death of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we need to take advantage of these things, and the title of my message is God's Greatest Preparation. So we're going to read this scripture. It's a long scripture, but I'm going to read it. It's the most important scripture uh, that dealing with the most important topic, <laughs> we need to we, we need to read. So I'm going to read it. Uh, the scripture says, "While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maid servants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, "You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth." But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway, and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you are certainly one of them, since you are also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priest tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
He answered him, you say so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. And after they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The, scripture, the inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who were passing by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they say, see, he's calling out for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, and offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and, and Salome. 
In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. And many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. God's greatest preparation. In what ways did God prepare his work for us and accomplish his work for us? Well, first of all, I want you to see he accomplished a full restoration. A full restoration. Verse 71 of chapter 14 says he started to curse and swear. He's talking about Peter. I don't know this man you're talking about. This is his denial of Jesus Christ, exactly as predicted. This is a dark, dark moment for Peter. But I praise God that he is a God who restores sinners. He gave a full restoration to Peter. We read about it in the Gospel of John. Jesus, three times, significantly, because of the three denials, says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep, feed my lambs. He recommissioned him for his purpose and fully restored him. Aren't you glad for the great work of restoration that Jesus does with us? Um, I think of David, King David in the scripture, uh, in his sin, and, and uh, Nathan confronted him with his sin. And the scripture says that David confessed, I have sinned. And um, there were some consequences in David's life that came about as a result of his sin. But God restored him. And if you read in the Psalms and you see uh, the praise of David in the latter years of his life, it's just more and more exuberant. God restored him fully after his sin. The scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hallelujah. Full restoration. So God's greatest preparation, what did he prepare for us? He prepared a full restoration. Secondly, a complete acquittal. I love it. Complete acquittal. By the way, the opposite happens to Jesus. Right? Jesus is condemned. Jesus is found guilty. Verse 13, again they shouted, crucify him. The sentence from the crowd. Jesus, the perfect, innocent, spotless lamb, was condemned for us. In the Old Testament, they would take a, a lamb and they would uh, press their hands down upon the head of the lamb and they would begin to confess their sin. And it was a symbol of the fact that sin was being transferred from the worshiper to the animal, and the animal was sacrificed then upon the altar 
so that forgiveness could come for sin. But ultimately, those animals were just a picture and anticipation of what Jesus would come to do. Jesus was the spotless Lamb of God. Never sinned in thought, word, action, omission. Jesus fully and wholly fulfilled the law of God. Yet he was condemned. Why? He was condemned so I could be acquitted. So you could be acquitted. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified, that's a legal term that means acquitted, declared righteous. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Full acquittal. And there's no double jeopardy. <laughs> Praise God, the price is paid for all time. A full restoration, a complete acquittal. Thirdly, a perfect healing. A perfect healing. Look at verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Having him flogged. This is the scourging that Jesus himself predicted a few, few uh, uh, times earlier. Isaiah 53 tells us, by his stripes, we're healed. A perfect healing. Can I tell you something? We serve a God who can heal. I saw that this week with my father. We've seen it in our church as we've prayed for individuals and, and the doctors have given up hope and God has healed them. Our God is a healing God, but he doesn't just heal physically. He heals emotionally. He heals spiritually. I want to tell you something. The greatest miracle of all is when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ and is spiritually transformed. God did a work of healing in my heart when I gave my heart to Christ. And he has continued. I love, I love uh, the... Uh, there's a, there's a song that talks about it, but the song comes from the scripture. It says, there is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. I want to tell you something. God is in the healing business. He is Jehovah Rapha, our healer. Come with your brokenness, emotionally, spiritually. Come with your, your sickness and bring those sicknesses to God in prayer. God responds to the prayer of faith when he has assured us upon our, uh, in our hearts that a healing will take place. I believe that with all my heart. We saw that in my family as God assured me and assured my mom that my daughter was going to be healed of her immune system problem. The doctor told us there wasn't hope for that. And God healed her. So... Uh, yes, there are times God allows sickness. Paul asked God three times to remove his thorn in the flesh. God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
So there may be some times for different reasons where God will allow sickness. And of course, all of us, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that's the judgment. So all of us are appointed unto a day of death should Jesus tarry. But there will be a perfect healing for each and every one of us sitting here in this room. Because Jesus is coming back. And in that moment when Jesus comes back, the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air. Uh, we'll be changed in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye. I'll receive this glorified body with no sickness. I got up out of my chair. I don't know if it's the cold or if it was exercise or what it was, but I was walking like this. Yeah. It's a, I had to kind of straighten up. And listen, I want to tell you something. That's not going to happen when I get to heaven. There is a healer, and his name is Jesus Christ. So he has prepared a perfect healing. A full restoration, a complete acquittal, a perfect healing. Fourthly, an unconditional acceptance. I love this. Verse 20. After they had mocked him, they stripped off the purple robe and put his clothes on him. Jesus was despised and rejected. Isaiah predicted that. And Mark emphasizes this. If there's one thing that's emphasized in Mark's account versus the other gospel accounts of Jesus' death, it is the rejection of Jesus, the mockery of Jesus, the despising of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus by his own people. Jesus was rejected so you could be accepted. The one cry from the cross that Mark records is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was denied by Peter. He was mocked, spit upon, rejected, not only by the Jewish leadership, most of the Jewish leadership and, and, and the Romans who are involved, but ultimately, he was rejected by God himself. Not because he deserved to be rejected, but because our sin in that moment of time was put upon Jesus. And the Father in his holiness, in his purity, could not bear to look upon my sin. And he turned away. And Jesus, for the first time in eternity past, and the only time through eternity future, <laughs> experienced what it meant to be lost. He experienced the wrath of God. He experienced the emptiness of broken fellowship so that you and I could be accepted. I love what Romans 5 says. Since we have now been reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? He was rejected. I am accepted. I, I want you to know that this acceptance is unconditional. If you're a child of God, 
This acceptance is unconditional. You say, well, I thought I could break fellowship with God. Yes, you can. And you have to confess your sin to God to restore that fellowship. But you're still accepted in God. The way we're accepted has nothing to do with our performance. It has to do with the perfect, spotless life of Jesus Christ received on our behalf by God and the perfect substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross as he took the penalty and the alienation from God that we deserved so that we could be reconciled. It's unconditional acceptance, and it will last forever. Our, our human relationships a lot of times are conditional, right? Especially if you go, you talk about... Uh, Marriage, a lot of times uh, people get married, they say, well, I love you till death do us part, un unless you do something I don't like. Now, they don't say that, but that's a lot of times what they mean. That's never the case with God. God has unconditionally accepted you for all time. Satan can't take it away. Other human beings can't take it away, and you yourself cannot take it away. You're accepted in the beloved. Hallelujah. <laughs> An unconditional acceptance. So God's greatest preparation, what has he prepared for us? A full restoration, a complete acquittal, a perfect healing, an unconditional acceptance. Next, an eternal life. Verse 37 of Mark 15 says, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. The scripture says, the soul that sins must die. The soul that sins must die. In the, in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. You say, well, they didn't die that day. Oh, yes, they did. They died spiritually, they died emotionally, and then ultimately they died physically. Soul that sins must die. Fellowship was broken. They were excluded from the garden. The relationship that they had with God was never the same. Until they went to heaven. That's another story. But this death, the scripture says, has passed upon all men for all have sinned. The only hope for the death, the spiritual, emotional death, and ultimately the physical death of mankind, the only answer for it is Jesus Christ. Jesus let out a loud cry. We know from the other Gospels what that was. It is finished. Hallelujah. I couldn't help but mention that. Anyway, he let out a cry and breathed his last. So I can breathe for all eternity. He was forsaken by God so I could be accepted. And eternal life, John 17, 3 tells us this. This is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, 
through Jesus' death, I enter into life spiritually, emotionally, and ultimately physically for all time. Hallelujah. Eternal life is just that. Once that relationship with Christ begins, it lasts forever. Once we receive that glorified body, it lasts forever, an eternal life. Hallelujah. What hope to stand above the casket of someone you love and to say, we will see them again. This is the hope we have in Jesus. So, um, he prepares an eternal life. Next, he prepares an unlimited access. I love this. Verse 38. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's he talking about? The curtain that veiled the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies from the priests and the people of God. I'm told it takes, it, it, this, this curtain was so thick it would take six teams of horses to pull it apart. But it ripped from top to bottom. You think God's trying to say something there? What is he saying? What God did in the Old Testament was truly remarkable when, when God came to dwell among the people of, of Israel. I mean, that, no, no other nation had ever experienced that. But there was always a barrier. For the Gentiles, there was a barrier to the tabernacle courts themselves, unless they converted uh, to Judaism. For the Jewish people, there was a barrier at the holy place, the veil that covered the holy place. For the priests, there was a veil before the Holy of Holies. They could not enter. The high priest could enter once a year, but only once a year. There was a barrier between men and God. That barrier is our sin. But you know, God did something really remarkable on the veil of the tabernacle. He wove together the cherubim and the scarlet cords that represented the coming Savior who would rip the veil. Now, if you know Jesus Christ, it is your heritage as a child of God to enter his presence anytime you want to enter. Just as a father that loves his kids or a grandparent that loves their kids eagerly welcomes them when they come to sit in their lap. The Father eagerly welcomes you every single time you come. Not because you're worthy. It's not because of you. It's not because of me. Jesus paid the price so once again access could be restored. Hallelujah. An unlimited access. And listen, it just gets better from here. Now we see through a glass darkly. 
but being face to face. So, an unlimited access, and, and finally, an unstoppable kingdom. I love this. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, by the way, the very group that condemned Jesus and brought him to Pilate. But, of course, they did it in the secrecy of night, so I'm sure that any who sympathize with Christ, they, they conveniently forgot to notify. <laughs> you, know, you know how that works. Anyway, Joseph comes and asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. But he says he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus spoken about, he had spoken about the kingdom coming in the future. He had also spoken about the kingdom has come in the sense that Jesus was with them. He was the king. Uh, those that followed him were the subjects and so forth. But God has always been king. It's not as though Jesus is trying to bring in something that, that is not the case for God. The thing that Jesus was doing is he was allowing us to be a part of the kingdom. So, as Joseph goes to receive the body of Jesus from Pilate, on the day of preparation, he's expecting the kingdom to come in faith. That says something about who he was. But it also says something about how that kingdom's going to come. And, and it's, it's very poignant that this man who's hoping in the kingdom is going to get the body of the one who just paid for him to enter the kingdom. Isn't it an amazing? You can't stop the kingdom of God. We know the story, don't we? Three days later. He didn't stay dead. <laughs> he came to life. An unstoppable kingdom. Can I tell you something? The world can't stop the kingdom of God. They've been fighting against it ever since the dawn of time. They can't stop it. Satan and all the demons of hell cannot stop the kingdom of God. They did their best. Jesus was laying in the tomb. Jesus says, is that the best you can do? And he arose. I want to tell you something. God's kingdom is going to come. It is assured. It is firm. It is settled. Jesus has paid the price. What has he prepared for us? A full restoration, a complete acquittal, a perfect healing, an unconditional acceptance, an eternal life, an unlimited access, an unstoppable kingdom. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing work of preparation that Jesus made at the cross. Thank you that we're healed by his stripes, that we're reconciled through his rejection. And Lord, we just pray that as we live our lives, we would do so in a way that brings glory and honor to your great name.